Well, if you would with me this morning, open to the book of 1 John. 1 John. And we're going to look together at chapter 5. And it looks as though we probably only have one more week in the book of 1 John together. But there's good news because there's a 2nd John and a 3rd John, so we're not done yet. So, all right. So we're looking at verses 13 to 17 this morning. So let's all look at that together. And we'll just read our passage as we begin our time in the Word. So again, that's 1 John 5, verses 13 to 17. And it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Last week, we looked at a passage that had some obscure meanings. And this week, we look at a passage that has some obscure meanings. Uh, There are some difficult things to understand in the Word of God sometimes. And yet, there is a concept that we all have to grasp and understand that in all of Scripture, it is true that it is uh, a a concept that you may or may not have heard this word before. It's called perspicuity, and it just means, generally speaking, that the Word of God is clear. But what this means, generally, is that the Word of God is clear in the things that pertain to God, His character, man, sin, and salvation. However, there are things that, as the New Testament itself testifies, that even in some of Paul's letters, some of them are difficult to understand. And so we recognize that while the scriptures are clear in leading us to salvation, knowledge of God and and mankind, yet there are difficult passages for us to understand. And sometimes there are passages that are not super clear to us. And so what we should do in those circumstances is always let scripture be its best interpreter. And so, in, when we face these passages that may be fuzzy to us or not super clear, then what we should do is let the clearer passages of Scripture help us to understand those that maybe are not so clear. Because if we were to formulate any kind of doctrine based on a fuzzy passage, then you would have fuzzy theology, right? Right? And we don't want a fuzzy theology. We want a theology that is clear. We want a theology that is biblical. We want a concise theology, right? And so um, we approach a text such as this, understanding these different concepts and knowing that there is something for us here and for us. Other passages speak to what's being said here. Now, what is unclear uh, is in verses 16 and 17, because you may have heard before a sin that leads to death. There is sin that leads to death. But in the sin that leads to death, 
there is also sin that does not lead to death. What is this death that we're talking about? What is that sin? Because I definitely don't want to do it, right? However, what exactly are we talking about? When we approach this text again, what we know is that John is not going to jump outside of the context that he's already been in. We've learned that, haven't we? And isn't that the great joy and benefit of actually beginning at the beginning of a book of a Bible and moving through it is that we together have been talking about the context of 1 John for weeks. And so we already have an understanding and a feel for where John is and how he defines certain words and concepts and the general grasp that he wants us to have of these concepts. And so we know that he's not going to all of a sudden start talking about something completely different and defining his terms differently than he did before, right? So we approach it in context. Now, verses 13 through 15. What I'd like to do is take that together at first and understand what John is saying. And then in light of what he has said in verses 13 through 15, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 and see how it relates in context, okay? So verses 13 through 15, what is John telling us here? John wants the believers to have a couple of things. But primarily what he wants us to have is assurance of salvation as God's children. Assurance of salvation as God's children. And there are two aspects to it. So I've said it this way, and we're going to look at the text and see it. Assurance of salvation as God's children, in other words, that our Father cares for us both now and forever into eternity. There's a forever aspect and there's a now aspect to God's care for his children. Is it important that the believers are identified as God's children? Well, for John, that's very important, isn't it? Hasn't he been pressing that? You are either God's children or you're not. Um, If you're not God's children, you belong to someone else and you are Satan's children at that point. Right? And you were either in light or you were in the dark. So for those who are in the light and who are believers, they belong to God and they are God's children. And if we are children, guess what we have? A father. What kind of father do we have? A father that loves us and cares for us. When? Only after you die and you're in heaven. Then you'll experience the love and comfort of your father. Is, is that true? Or do we experience the love and comfort care of our Father now and into eternity is, are both true. Both are definitely true, and John wants his readers to understand that. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, I'm writing these things to you, believers, children of God, and listen, that you might know that you have eternal life. It's important that believers have assurance of their salvation. It's important that you know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ by faith. He wants us to be sure of our salvation, but as we've looked at in so many different contexts, he doesn't want us to have a false assurance, does he? No, he wants us to have a true assurance, and that's why he wants us to evaluate our lives. Not only in who you say you are, but also in how you behave, because how you behave identifies you as a child of God. And what has he been bringing up this whole time? What is the one key identifying behavior that we ought to be looking for in ourselves to identify that we truly belong to God? Our love for God's children. 
Do you have love for God's children? If you don't, then you must not be a child of God because all of God's children have love for God's children. And so he says, I'm writing these things to you who are God's children. And what I want you to know is that you have eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. He wants us to have this reassurance. Assurance of salvation includes both God's care for us now and forever. Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. I was just thinking about it as I was reading these passages. I just want to share it with you, just to be mindful of it. It is Father's Day after all. We're thinking about fathers. We're thinking about our Heavenly Father. Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11 says, Which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? And I paused at that and I thought, I don't know. Sometimes I can see the merit of just giving my child the exact opposite thing of what they asked for. Know what I'm saying? But out of what do I want to do that? Because that's not really the point. What he's saying is a good father understands these things and has care for his children. And so when his child wants something so desperately and you ask for it and it's okay to give it, is he going to give you the exact opposite of what you asked for? But he says, or, or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent. That's close enough, right? Kind of water-like creatures. But if you then, who are evil, even then, even you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? We have a good Father. We have a loving father, one who cares for us. And I want you to remember this as we move into verses 16 and 17. I want you to remember the great care and love and concern and compassion that our father has for us. Because this is what gives us a great assurance of our salvation. He cares for us not only forever in eternity, but he cares for you today, now, as his child. Those of you who are parents, do you love and care for your children even in the midst of their rebellion? Think of that honestly. Do you still have a heart for them even in their rebellion? And if you, who are evil, can have a heart for your children in the rebellion, how much more can our Heavenly Father have a heart for us when we are in our rebellion? He cares for you. For those who are his children in Christ, he cares for you today. And he wants you to know that you have eternal life. But it doesn't just only go into eternity, but you know, there's a present aspect to it that John is trying to highlight for us. And what is that? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Does sometimes you feel as though your prayers are unheard by your heavenly father? Well, there might be a couple of reasons for that. Number one, you just think it, but just because you think something doesn't make it true. Right? So that could be it. You think your prayers are not answered, but they actually are. You think that God doesn't hear you, but he actually does. That could be, that could be part of it. And the second thing could be this, is that your prayer 
is not part of the will of God. Your prayer is not in line with God's will. And we know that. You ever asked for things that you knew ultimately, I, this probably isn't the best thing, but you know what, I'm going to pray for it, and we'll see what happens. And when you do that, and it's not part of God's will, he's saying, well, I will hear you and I will grant those requests should they be in my will, right? But should they not be, then they will not be granted. God does not grant every request, but only those requests which are according to his will. That's important for us to take with us, don't you think? Because if you think I'm a child of God and he said anything I ask, he's going to answer me. Again, just think, parents, do you grant every request of your children? If you do, I don't, I don't know about you. And if you being evil can make that determination, how much more your heavenly father, right? So God grants all requests of his children that are according to his will. And that is a great encouragement to us, right? God grants all requests of his children that are according to his will. And so the encouragement to us here is, so then pray. It's not, so then don't pray because you don't know what the will of God is for that. No, you pray. You pray. And we should pray. And I just, I wondered as I was thinking through this, because it's a simple concept, what, what stops us from praying? If we were to ask each individual in this room, I can guarantee that all of us are dissatisfied with our prayer life and are probably ashamed of it. If we were to have to put how many minutes you spend in prayer this week on a board, right? You'd say, I, please don't do that. <laughs> please don't do that. Uh, because we're ashamed of our, of our prayer life. There is an aspect here that we need to understand. If you had parents that you knew genuinely cared for you, and not only that, had all resources to care for you perfectly. And you found yourself in situations where you needed their help. What stops you from asking them for help? It's the same thing that stops us from asking our Heavenly Father. We become self-dependent, self-reliant. God does not want you to be a self-reliant person. He wants you to be wholly reliant upon him in everything. And if in everything, if, any, if, if in every thought and in every deed we were wholly dependent on him, guess who we would always be asking for help? We would always be going to him. And if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. And guess what? The God who hears us, who is our father, is sovereign over his entire creation and owns all things. He has all ability to do everything for you. And yet, we still find ourselves struggling to enter into prayer, right? Why is that? John has been creating themes for us to understand, asking, who are the children of God? What do they believe? How do they behave? They believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We got that. They behave as God's children. 
putting this on display in love for God's children primarily. And they should have confidence before God and assurance of their salvation, knowing that God cares for them both now and forever. All these concepts make sense, right? And this is very simple, isn't it? A very simple thing to understand. One, the, so here's the hinge, that if we don't get the hinge, we might not understand verses 16 and 17. Here's the hinge that it all turns on, okay? We ask a question. How does my assurance of salvation and confidence in prayer display itself in love for God's children? I'm going to say that again. Think about it. Because aren't we in all things, according to John, to be displaying our love for God's children in all things? We're supposed to be displaying love for God's children. So this would also be true in our assurance of salvation and in our prayer life, right? If we love God's children, will it surface itself in our prayer life? It should. How does my assurance of salvation and my confidence in prayer display itself in love for God's children? Or does it? So, with that question in mind, look at verses 16 and 17. If anyone, any of, any of you, sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I don't say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I will admit that there are four primary historical interpretations of this text. And all four mean something dramatically different. And I am convinced of one particular interpretation. Contextually, as we've been walking through it together, and I believe that it keeps with John's theme. It makes sense of his terms, his understanding, his concepts, and his words. And not only that, it finds itself in agreement with other passages in the New Testament that are very clear. Okay? So, that being said, we know a couple of things uh, in context. But before I get to that, I... Th I I, I like asking questions as we enter into complicated texts because if we think about the right questions, we might, ask, we, we, we might get the right answers. But if we think about the wrong questions, we might get the wrong answers, right? You with me on that? Okay, so let's ask the right questions to lead us to find the right answers. Asking the wrong questions doesn't bring up the right answers. Okay, so um, what happens when genuine believers fall into sin? Let's just think about that. What happens when a genuine, true, faithful, converted, born-again, regenerate, however you want to term it, true believer falls into sin? First of all, is it possible? Second, how do we make sense of that? Because John has been telling us that if you are in the light, you have to only walk in the light. You don't walk in the darkness. You don't practice the deeds of darkness. No, you overcome them. And you live in the light. But what about when someone who lives in the light practices something of the darkness? Can that be? Or are they two exclusive kingdoms that never touch one another? 
can a true believer sin? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Not in fact can, right? But it's when and how often, right? What happens, though, when believers sin? To what extent can they sin? Are these questions maybe you've asked before? I know that they are because here's how that train of thought goes. I think this person is a Christian, but based on what they're doing and how long they've been doing it, I don't know if they are or not. Right? You ever thought this way? Maybe sometimes you think of yourself that way. How could I be a believer and do that? How? How could that happen? Am I really a believer? Because I shouldn't be having those thoughts. Oh, maybe that's a clue that I'm not a believer. I shouldn't be doing that. Why did I do that? Well, what do all of these things spur on in our hearts and in our minds? Does it produce confidence in eternal life or fear of death? produces a fear. What do we know about fear? That perfect love casts out fear. What kind of fear? Condemnation from God. So, if you are a true believer, you should not be having fear of condemnation from God, right? Because if we understand God's love and it is growing in us, then we understand that I have eternal life it's mine, I should have confidence in it, and even when I do sin, I should, as 1 John 1, 9 says, confess that sin to God, right? So it's not a matter of if Christians sin, it's when Christians sin, and what should I do in response to another Christian's sin? If you have love for someone else, another believer, another child of God, and they are in sin, what is John saying that we should do on their behalf if we really love them? Let's read the passage again in light of all those questions. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, we have to, uh, I know, give some meaning to some terms here. But before we do, there are two concepts that we have to pull out that are absolutely true. We are to be watchful for believers who are in sin. And so if you, are, if you love God's children, these two, these two things need to be true. Number one, you will be in community with them. And number two, you will be in prayer for them. How do I know this? Look at what it says. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, tell me. How can you see another brother committing sin if you are never around them? Never around. If you never come around other believers and you're doing the me and my Bible in the backyard Christianity, probably not even your Bible, just me in the backyard, right? If you're not in community, how can others see your way of life? so as to hold you accountable to sin and not only hold you accountable, but to pray for you when you sin. And then look at it from the other side. If we are not around other believers, how can we be loving them? 
If we're not in true community with other believers, how can we be loving them? I don't know how properly to love you if you're not honest with me, if you're not around me, if we don't know each other, how can we pray for one another? But what is evident here about the Christian community is that we are honest and we are transparent and that we are in community with one another regularly so as to be aware of one another's sin. This goes against the grain of culture and church culture. Because for many of us, we don't want to make our sins known because, well, church is where the goody-goodies go and I don't ever want people to think that I'm a sinner and in church. And so what happens is, for the extreme cases, you have a bad week, you sin, and then all of a sudden, where are you on Sunday? Well, I'm not going to go to church on Sunday because I did bad things. Which proves the case that you think that you can't trust this community with your sin. I believe that you can trust this community with your sin because we understand that there is none of us who is perfect, which is why we need Jesus Christ, the Savior. You can trust. And you know what? Should that occasion arise when you share that sin with someone else and they have a bad reaction, that's on them. Shame on them. But we are not that community. We are one another uh, living in community who love each other. And if you love someone else, are you concerned if they're in sin? I think you should be. If you are not concerned that one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is in sin, you don't love them. Right? Go on and sin all you want. I don't care. It's not me. I'm going to do my thing. You do your thing. That's not genuine care and concern. And that's not the way that God intends the Christian community to behave toward one another. Also, if you love God's children, not only will you be in community with them, you will be in prayer for them. You ever been in a circumstance where there were other believers or another believer that was in sin and you just wanted to react, to respond, you just wanted to do something with them, to them, for them, whatever it may, whatever. But I never prayed for them. Is there someone in sin right now that you know who is a believer? And you, yeah, I don't want them to be in sin. But still, you have not gone to God to pray for them. This text is telling us when another believer is in sin, you should pray for them. Maybe that's not the answer we want to hear. Maybe the answer we want to hear is that you should intervene and show that you are a better Christian than them and rub it in their face and maybe shame them into doing something different. Maybe that's the option we want. But that's not what it says, is it? When you see a brother in sin, pray for them. And what will happen when you pray for them? Well, the text says that God will give them life. Are they dead? So we have to figure that part out, don't we? What happens when we pray for them? Okay, and so I ask this question leading into the next part of our text. What about when we pray for those who are in sin and the Lord does not answer? Let me tell you what I mean by that. 
you have someone, because what, what was just said by John? What was just said? Verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So go to God in prayer, and when you pray for anything according to his will, he's going to hear you. And so you see a believer in sin. And so you go to God and pray, and you pray in confidence, because everything I pray according to God's will, he's going to hear me, right? And so when I pray that someone would stop sinning, I think, is that God's will? Or maybe it's God's will that you keep on sinning. What? What a weird thought to think. No, it's not God's will that you continue on in sin, is it? No, but it would be God's will that you stop sinning. So, is it always God's will that we pray for believers to stop sinning and to repent, confess that to God? Yes. So, what happens then when you pray for that and the Lord doesn't answer? That's the question. Because according to John, he always hears every prayer by believers that are according to his will. And it is always the will of God that someone stops sinning when they're in sin. So then what happens when we pray for believers to stop sinning and they don't? And God doesn't grant that. Well, first of all, we know that God does use our prayers to help those who are in sin, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't tell us to do it. But then he says, but I have to tell you about this reality is that there is sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying that that's what we should be praying for. What does that mean? That's the question. What does it mean? And why for us is that a concern? Let's look at a couple of things here. We have to follow a logical and contextual uh, basis. And context would tell us a couple of things. So three concepts. Uh, A brother is a child of God. Would you say that's true from the context of 1 John? Right? A brother is a believer. Uh, Second, that a child of God has eternal life. I mean, that's pretty clear. Both of these are pretty clear so far, isn't it? Okay, and then also that eternal life means that you should have confidence in your eternal life. Yes? Okay, so follow these three again. A brother is a child of God. Good. And if a child of God, then you have eternal life, never to be taken from you. Right? And then if you have eternal life, you should have confidence. Why? Because because it is yours forever. So then, what does our text mean when it says, if you see a brother committing sin not leading to death? It can't mean spiritual death because that could never be. Because he just said back in verses 13 through 15 that you should have confidence that you have eternal life never to be taken from you. If you are a believer, your eternal life will never be taken from you. Never. So, if it's already ours forever and can never be taken from us, how is it that there is sin that leads to death? Well, if it's not spiritual death, it must be a different kind of death. What kind of death are we talking about? I think it's important to say that no sin that the believer can commit leads to spiritual death. 
the believer. The believer. Because you might be thinking, oh, the sin of apostasy. Right? That is denying the Holy Spirit. A true believer is one who accepts the things of God, not rejects the things of God. Okay? So a true believer who has genuine faith in Christ has a regenerated soul. And this being the case, accepts the things of God. So there is no sin that the believer can commit that would lead to spiritual death. In other words, what I'm saying is, you can't, a believer cannot sin to such a degree that removes their salvation from them. Think of this in terms of justification. Justification means God looks at you and says you're a sinner, but yet your penalty has been paid in full, stamped, paid in full. And then you sin and God says, whoa, 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 I didn't expect you to sin like that. Never mind, how can I erase this stamp I put on here? Only to find you can't undo it. Something that is paid in full considers both the past and the present, but then also the future. Was God unaware of the sins that you would commit when he said justified? Or was he fully aware of the sins that you would commit when he said justified, forgiven, paid in full? Right? So there is no sin that the true believer can commit that would bring about spiritual death. You are promised eternal life. However, believers do sin, and for the believer, there is a sin that leads to death. What are we talking about? Because, again, I don't want to do that. Do you? Is there a warning here? Don't sin unto death. Okay. So, let's consider a couple of texts here. I have them on the screen. Three references. And I'd like for you, if you, if you can... Uh, maybe this week, just, just jot those down so that you can maybe reference these more in full in your own time. These are the three passages that I believe are bearing witness to the truth that we find here in 1 John chapter 5. It is clear in these other texts what's happening to these believers and something that God does with believers when they sin. Okay, Acts 5, 1 through 11, I'm going to summarize for you. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? What was the end of the story? What happened to them? They died. Spiritual death? Oh, they, they literally died. They literally physically died. Why? Well, it says because they lied against the Holy Spirit. What happened was they were raising money. And people were selling things and bringing money and, and setting the money at the apostles' feet. And uh, I, I mean, you can say it kind of like this. Imagine this kind of scenario. They have a piece of land and they sell it for uh, $100,000. And their intention to God uh, and to the church was, whatever we sell this for, we're going to give you all of it. They sold it for, I don't know, maybe more than what they thought they could get for it. And so they had the money and they say, whoa, I mean, this thing just sold for $200,000. Now, we said we were going to give it all, but the husband and wife got together and said, well, we only promised them 100 though, so let's just say that we only sold it for $100,000 and just give them that, and then, hey, we'll all have $100,000. 
good situation. Okay, so they go and Ananias lays the money down and Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you're about to die. And he dies. And then the wife comes in and he says, uh, you know, asks her questions about it and she maintains the lie. And he said, the people who carried your husband out dead are about to carry you out dead. And she also died. There is no indication, however, that they were not genuine believers. They were one. They were among them. They were part of the church. They were doing everything the other believers were doing. It says they even lied to the Holy Spirit, which means they were communicating with the Holy Spirit, right? So there's every reason to believe, actually, that they were believers, but yet fell into sin. And the consequence for such sin was literal physical death. Another passage I want to take you to, which is a little shorter. I reference it quite frequently, so we don't need to put a whole lot of effort into it. But that's 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. And then where we're going to spend a little bit of time is going to be in James 5. But 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32 is the text that we primarily read when we're doing the Lord's Supper, when we're taking the Lord's Supper here at church. Now, do you remember there's a particular part of this that seems a bit weird? It seems weird because the concept we're talking about is, is not taught very often. But it is in Scripture and it's clear. As we have already seen from our illustration, and here we're going to have a teaching on it, and what does it say? Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then what does this next part say? And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged, because when, we, when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, in that, we find that when these people died, physical death, some were weak and ill. That was physical. But some died. And why did they die? It's because they sinned against the Lord. And was this wrath? Did he undo their justification? No, actually it says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we are not condemned. So that we are not condemned. The discipline of the Lord falls on some in the midst of their sin in a physical death by means, or we, we think of it not in terms of wrath because wrath has been paid, right? but in terms of discipline, and that's the very word used here, discipline. The discipline of the Lord came upon them. And what did that discipline look like? Physical death. James 5, verses 13 through 20. This one is the most clear, and it actually has a body of Christians praying for those who are in sin. And we're going to see, because that's what John is talking about, is that if there are believers in sin, what should we do and how do our prayers work with other believers who are sinning in this concept of God bringing judgment and discipline upon believers? James 5, verses 13 through 20, and it says, Is any among you suffering? And to that we say, always. So let him pray, always. Is anyone cheerful? Hey, then you should sing praise, sing praise. You should do that. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And listen to what that prayer accomplishes. 
The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will, he will be forgiven. Now, there's a therefore there, which is important, but we're not going to get to that therefore yet. Listen to what happens. Someone is sick. Call for the elders, and the elders pray for them. And think about what happens. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. What is that saving? Spiritual saving? The prayer of faith will give justification. You can actually make someone saved just because they're sick and you pray for them. Now, that wouldn't make sense, would it? Is that what it's talking about? The Lord will save the one who is sick from that sickness continuing on, that sickness leading into death, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there is our connection with sin and sickness, which may lead to death. Okay? Is that the church comes around them and prays for them. And that prayer actually accomplishes something. It actually does something. It doesn't do nothing. If it didn't do anything, then we wouldn't pray for them. We would just wait and see what God did. Which unfortunately is is primarily what we do. Let's just wait and see what happens. <laughs> Why we do that? Because we become self-sufficient. And we're not depending on him always in every circumstance. Even when someone is in sin. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I, I thought about how many different ways I could joke about there being sick people today. And us talking about sickness and sin. But I've decided not to do that. But we we recognize that not everyone who is sick is because of their personal sin, right? I mean, we know that, right? However, sometimes physical sickness may be the result of sin. If that's a new concept or a hard concept to grasp, it's because it's, it's just not taught very often, even though it's in Scripture, as we've already seen in this fourth situation that sickness sometimes is the Lord's discipline on your life for rebellion, for the believer who is in sin. And should you find yourself in that circumstance, you should ask for prayer. And if you've committed sins that have led to that, the prayer of faith will save that one. The Lord intends to use the prayers of the church to raise up those who have sinned, but it's not going to be without the repentance and confession of that sin from the person who is sick, right? Do you think God is going to just erase it and say, well, they prayed for you, so you don't need to repent and confess? Or does the prayer lead to an internal desire and understanding of their sin so that they repent and confess of their sin, and so God brings them through that sickness? That's, that's how it works, right? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, there's our therefore. So what should you do? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, if I could just pause again for a second. We all know that confessing sins to one another is not practiced as it should be within the church, correct? When you sin, and especially if it's a sin that can be hidden in the secrets of your own heart and mind, I can keep that secret from everyone and no one will ever know. So why tell anybody? The Lord knows. 
there is actually a plan that God has for your sanctification and for your thriving as a believer. And that comes by means of confessing your sins to one another in the church, which you should feel a confidence about and trust one another with your confession. That when we confess sins, people aren't going to... Uh, what do we think people are going to do, by the way, when we confess sins? What do we think is going to happen? You tell someone about a thought you had or something you did, and you're admitting it to them. You're confessing it to them. You're not bragging about it. You're admitting you're wrong. What do you think someone's going to do with that? What we imagine, I think, is wild. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I know I don't want any part of it. I don't want to admit my failures. Why? Why? That's right. Pride is the answer. Because we want to appear as something that we are not. We want to appear as someone who has been perfected, but none of us is. And so there should be a transparency within the community that we trust one another and we love one another. And the reason I'm confessing it is for you to hold me accountable and because I want you to pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me that I might confess that to God, that I might repent of that and move on because that's what I want. I want to move on from that sin, but it seems like it has a hold of me. I don't want it. Pray for me. Will you pray for me? We should be praying for one another in our sins. And you know what? That prayer will be heard. And that's what John is saying. If you see someone in sin, that is, you either witnessed it with your eyes or they have come and they have confessed it to you. If you know that they're in sin, pray for them. Because God intends to use that prayer so the church community is necessary. Do you see that? It's just kind of a little extra that we see, but you've got to see it. It makes the church community necessary and not just something that you attend on some Sunday morning. That's not being part of a church community, just attending. But being involved in the church community intimately, that is what God intends and that's how he wants to bring about this in our lives. So let's just finish out this passage in James and then just make some conclusions here, okay? In James, he continues on and he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And he, he brings up Elijah. Remember when Elijah prayed? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That it was, he was just a man. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. In other words, what is he saying? Prayer works. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Save his soul from death? That word soul, by the way, um, is used in 1 John 3.16. When he says, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That word soul is the same word. as It means life. To save his life from death. Believers are told to pray for other believers who are in sin. True. The Lord will use that prayer to raise him up and forgive him. Unless, and here's, what, I think we get the idea though, that there are sins that lead unto death. And he's saying, that's not what I'm talking about. Because if the Lord has so chosen in his will to bring about death in the life of a believer due to discipline, 
then that's the Lord's decision, and he has chosen to do that. And in that scenario, your prayer will not be heard because the Lord has made up his mind in that regard. But if a sin doesn't lead unto death, pray for them. Pray for them anyway. If, if by the way, we were to like judge all these individual sins, okay, which, let's make a list of sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death, and let's just put them on the wall. And then if you commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, we'll pray for you. But if you commit one of these that does lead to sin, we're just not going to pray for you. Do you really think that that's what he means? Or is he saying, listen, just pray for everyone who is in sin and God will hear it, God will answer it, but I'm just letting you know in those cases where the Lord doesn't answer, know that he has a plan. He is listening to you. He does care for you. He does care for his church. This is not out of anger for his church. No, it's out of love for his church that he disciplines his church. And why is all this the case? He says there is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that that's what we need to pray for because God has made up his mind about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And so pray, always pray that the Lord would bring about faith and repentance in the lives of believers who are in sin. And by the way, who are the believers who are in sin? Every one of us that we should be praying for. Are we praying for one another as we should, as regularly as we should, as carefully as we should, as lovingly as we should? I think no. I know the answer is no for me. I think we can all be praying. Do, do you ever have time? I, I have a different viewpoint here, but there are times when I just, I take a snapshot in my mind and I view, I, I see everyone who's here and I think, and I pray. I pray for you. You don't know it. But I pray. I, I just, I wonder, are we doing that enough? Are you, are you considering those brothers and sisters in Christ and are you praying for them? Because you love them? And because you don't want them to be in sin? Do you see how this is love? How this is brotherly love to pray for one another? Last concept I'm gonna leave you with this morning is this. Why, is God, why does God do this? If this is the case, and this is true, which I hope now that I have satisfied your curiosities with this and showing you the text that, that God does in fact do this with believers by, because of his discipline, why does he do this? Why ever would it be God's will? Let's just take Ananias and Sapphira as an example, but we know that in the other churches in Corinth, some had died due to their rebellion. So we know it, it's more, it's more than that. Why would God ever do that? because God is purifying his church. And it's something that we have to remember. God is purifying his church and he is very serious about it. He's very serious about it. There's several passages here. Um, I'll just leave the first two for your review at home, okay? I'm going to read for us though, as we conclude our time together, I'm gonna read Hebrews 12 verses seven through 13. I think it's a fitting conclusion to this concept. The author of Hebrews understands why it is that the Lord is bringing about discipline in the lives of believers. So uh, let me read that for you. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 13. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In other words, fathers. You should discipline your sons. 
Discipline is good. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So therefore, if God is not disciplining you because of your sin, guess what that means? Then you're not a child of God because he disciplines all of his sons, which you are, because we have an inheritance. That's why we're called sons. Okay, so God is treating all believers as sons, which means he's going to discipline you. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, because you're not perfect. And when you're not perfect, God is going to bring discipline in your life, but to varying degrees. That's left to his judgment. Okay, besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. In other words, because that's what fathers do. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they t- disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us. Listen, this is, this is key here. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. Why does the discipline of God come on people? The answer is this. Because God intends that you be holy. He is purifying his church, and he will do it. Those other passages help you to understand that. God wants a perfect, spotless bride presented to himself, and guess what? He's going to have one. He's doing the work of purifying. It's going to happen. That's the Ephesians 5 text. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but yet later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, listen to this. So what should you do if you find yourself under the hand of God's discipline? What should you do, the one being disciplined? Well, first of all, we already know that you should call for other believers and the elders of the church to pray for you. Some have done that. I think maybe not in as many scenarios as we should have. If you need prayer, you should ask for prayer. But the second thing is this. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. But listen to this last part, and it all comes together. Why do that? So that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Why would it be put out of joint? Because you didn't confess and repent. In John, a theme that we found back in verse 9 is that Jesus is our propitiation for sins. In other words, the wrath has been paid. But then, John tells us to confess our sins to God. Have you ever wondered why? Why? Why confess my sins to God regularly if I'm already forgiven? If I've already been forgiven of all my sin... Why go and confess sins that I have? Of what good is that? Why repent now if I already repented then? Why continue on in repentance? Well, number one, it's the way true believers act. But number two, it is so that if you judged yourself truly, you would not be judged by God and so face his discipline. You make that correction yourself and you admit freely. I think about my children and when is it that 
and mercy comes and discipline is bypassed. Almost often it's in situations where they come and they confess to me something they did before I have to come to them for discipline. I need to tell you, I, I did something and I'm coming to you right away and I'm letting you know that I'm sorry that I did this. Is that very different than covering it up, never telling me, and actually when I ask, you lie about it and you cover it up, then discipline is coming your way. Do you see how these two things are different? So what should we do? Be in prayer for one another. Understand that God's discipline is a real thing for believers, but rejoice in this fact. Eternal life is yours forever, and God loves you both now and forever, and his discipline is not out of anger over you. It is out of his love and his care for you. Why? Because he is a good father, and we are his children. All right, let's pray.